Hey, uh, we are starting a brand new series today. It's called Uncommon Community. We're going to be looking at the community that was started by the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. It's known as the church today. Uh, This series has the opportunity, I believe, to revolutionize and change your life in a radical way. Uh, This is not some weird late night sales pitch where I'm trying to sell you a spiruli that will peel the apple and make life so much easier or something like that. Instead, this is just to say that you and I have a need for that has been designed by God in our lives for community. The first thing God said is not good within his creation was it's not good for man to be. And a lot of my single people amen me a lot whenever we bring up the idea that it's not good for man to be alone. But the idea is that we were created to be a communal people. You and I are created to live in fellowship with other believers who are desiring to pursue Jesus and walk with Jesus, but struggling to do so. None of us are doing this right, perfectly. Uh, We need help. We have an upside, and you have a downside. And all the married people know that already. Amen? I mean, there's, for all of us, an upside... That comes with our strengths, our personality makeup, the way God made us and designed us. God's given you by the Holy Spirit, at the point of salvation, spiritual gifts. Those gifts, though, do not eliminate your need for other believers. In fact, they make you a symphony with a family of believers. And you've been gifted and designed so that you would find a community of people that you could break bread with, share life with, divide grief and multiply joy with for the glory of God. So that you can be encouraged by them when you're discouraged. And so that you can give courage to them whenever they are discouraged. So that you can help them remember the main thing whenever they are tempted or you are tempted to think that something else needs to be bigger than it actually needs to be in your life. You see, we have been created for people and community. And God designed this thing called church. Not as a space for you to put on the good clothes, show up, put on the makeup, and show off how good your kids are. But... As a place for you and I in our brokenness and imperfections to find a community of people that can look at us in that struggle and go, me too. I'm with you. I want Jesus, but I do not do what I want to do. I continue to do the things I don't want to do. I know what's right, but I continue to do what's not right. I I can't figure it out. And you get a group of people together that by the Holy Spirit have this beautiful mess that gives God this glorious praise so that our lives then begin to account for and begin to make an impact for something greater than ourselves. I love the book of Acts. It's probably one of my favorite books, top two, Romans number one, Acts number two. If you really want to get into what the preacher loves to preach, if I'm in Romans or Acts, it's going to be a barn burner, and we're going to have some fun because I love these two books. Romans lays out uh, uh, soteriology, a basis of understanding salvation and how it's the equalizer All of us being in need of a Savior, Uh, all of us, no matter what our background ethnically or economically may be, in need of Jesus. I love preaching through the book of Romans, but boy, you open the book of Acts and you give me the story of the local church. Man, I love the local church. I'm a weirdo, I know, but I get excited about this. My game day, my favorite day of the week is Sunday. It's going to come fall, I'm going to put on orange on Saturday, some of you are going to put on garnet, but when I come in here, just know that this day will be Ten times the passion that any Saturday will come because I love the local church and I love being a part of it. And so I just want to remind you that at Four Points, we are making a priority around community this year. 
Uh, we feel like 2020 did a number in isolation on a lot of us. I love digital stuff. I love those of you that are watching online and you have that convenience when you're traveling. And some of y'all have been traveling a lot this summer. But, but nonetheless, I, I, I love the convenience of y'all being able to watch and have community. I love that you can get on FaceTime and talk to family that aren't necessarily in the city that you're in. And you can keep up with a relationship. But there is something to be said about being able to look someone in the eye put a hand on them and pray for them when they're burdened, celebrate and join in celebration with them in person whenever they're thanking God for something in their life. There's something to be said uh, about getting to be around other people, believers who are trying to follow Jesus together. And so we recognize a community deficiency within our church at the end of last year as we began to pray and talk. A community deficiency, what, what do I mean? We get really good at getting into the crowd but we weren't really good at getting into a group. We were really good at gathering on a Sunday morning, but when it came to the places where we could talk about our faith and wrestle through our faith and say things that aren't necessarily uh, accurate because we're trying to figure out good theology and doctrine and wrestle through the ideas of Scripture, because sometimes you, you, you've got to learn, you've got to wrestle through things, you've got to sp- say the stuff that's within you that sometimes isn't what you want everyone to hear, that doesn't look impressive, so that you can then hear truth and it can get corrected, what, that inner monologue that you had in your head. And so we, we wanted to really work on community. So our mission at Four Points Church, this, the unchanging purpose for which we exist is to reach the least and the lost and the lonely with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're here to do. We're here to connect the disconnected with the life-changing, transformative message of the gospel. That is the unchanging, our extremely slow-to-change purpose for which Four Points exists. I mean, that's what we're going to be doing 10 years from now. But vision for us is a second term that we've adopted and begun to use as a way to describe current opportunities for us to meet the needs of our community or to mature as a church to better uh, reach our community uh, with what God's doing presently in our church. And so vision is short term. It's three to five years. And right now, our big focus over this three to five year period is that we would create dynamic environments across every service team, across every group, across every ministry. We create dynamic environments for people to connect with Jesus and each other. Why? Because we believe that you will not reach your full potential in Christ in isolation. That showing up within a crowd and not being known below the surface by someone who loved Jesus, the church, and you in that order will lead to you always running at a pace that is slower than you actually could go after Jesus. Accepting sin that you should not tolerate in your life because of the lack of community that could speak into your life. And lead you running at a pace that is slower than you could go if you had a good community that could, as Hebrews would say, spur you on to good works. To the application of your faith. When Jesus was here, he gave us a diagram of what community looked like. He didn't spend equal amounts of time with everybody. I know that's shocking. How could Jesus not spend as much time with that group as he did with this group? Why would Jesus go and visit Mary and uh, her brother and her sister, Martha, more than he visited some other people? How could he hang out with those disciples outside of all those disciples more than the others? But, But Jesus demonstrated for us, led by the Spirit, what it looked like to live a God-honoring and healthy life. And you and I have got to get a life lesson in relationships because let's just be honest, for some of us, we stinketh at it. That's KJV version. You stinketh at relationships. And we just need to be honest about it. We call the wrong people friend. 
everybody's friend and then no one's there when you need a friend. We let the wrong people in, we push the right people out. Why? Because they say things that tickle our ears, not the things that build us up in Christ. And so you've got to get good at community if you're going to reach your full potential in Christ because I don't believe any of us are Shira warrior princesses. None of us are Hercules or He-Mans that don't need community in order to reach our potential, but instead we've been designed and crafted and gifted so that when we find our few and our people, we would grow and flourish and they would grow and they would flourish and we would reach our full potential in Christ together. So Jesus, when he lived on earth, he associated with four groups commonly. The first group was the crowd. That's the crowd that came to see the miracles. That's the crowd that showed up and left and went home. The crowd are people that are frequently changing, that that you're not familiar with, and they aren't familiar with you, and you may know of them, but you don't know them. So you're going to have crowds in your life. Come Friday night in about two weeks, I hear there's a game at this little high school called Burns. It's going to be a crowd. Woodruff High School, going to be a crowd on some Friday nights. You don't know everybody there. They don't know your business. You may think everybody knows your business. Some people have worked hard as a good Baptist to make sure everybody knows your business, but nonetheless... Those people in that crowd don't know you. They don't know you, right? On top of that, Jesus didn't just spend time in the crowds mostly. He would move from the crowd to the assembly. Jesus had around 120 disciples at one time that would follow and walk around with him. And so there was an assembly of people that were together. Look, our community, it's our crowd. This church, this is our assembly. And you show up on Sunday mornings and you hear sermons. Some of them you like, some of them you don't like. Sometimes the preacher says things that are nice, and sometimes you think he's being mean to baby boomers, or so I've heard. Just trying to preach the Bible wherever the Spirit leads. Um, but this is the assembly. We, we love Jesus together. We're here because of the gospel. Uh, we're not here because of allegiance to a sports team because of a geographic location that we come from. We're not here because of our economic status. We're not here for any other reason other than the fact that we love Jesus, need Jesus, and we are centering our lives around Jesus. So the assembly is close enough for you to see them, for them to see you. Perhaps in some seasons of life, you've even had personal interaction with them. But predominantly, the assembly you see and talk to at a surface level once a week. Brothers and sisters... You will never reach your full potential with just crowds and assemblies. You will never reach your full potential in Christ Jesus in just crowds and assemblies. You've got to go deeper. How many of you have said, I want to go deep? I want to go to a church where the preacher preaches deep. I want to go to a church where they minister deep. I want to be in a place where, I, where it just is deep. I want deep. Okay, okay. Buttercup, are you ready to let people in deep within your life? Because the answer is no. Don't think that high-worded doctrine is going to make you deep. It is close, intimate relationships ordained by God that spur, that need out the imperfections in our lives, that help us to become and reach our full potential. You don't get there with just high doctrine. Satan has high doctrine. He knows how to speak the truth. He just doesn't adhere to it, apply it, and live by it. He knows the truth and can say it more eloquently than you can say it, yet it doesn't lead to a transformation and allegiance that's great when it comes to God. And so for you and I, just having high doctrine does not mean that you and I are going to reach our full potential in Christ. I would communicate to you that it's good doctrine by the Holy Spirit with a community of people who are implementing that doctrine into the transformation of the way they live their lives that leads to an actually changed life. And so you've got your crowd, you've got your assembly, 
But if you're only known in those places, you likely won't reach your full potential in Christ. Why? Because you need a group. And Jesus had a group. Out of the 120, he gathered with the 12. These were his disciples. These were the people after hours he spent time with. Now, your church can only take you this far. From that point forward, it's not a program that gets you what's next. It is the divine hand of God and you recognizing the stewardship of the relationships and people that he's put around you that help you go further. So we design groups, and on August the 28th, we're going to have a group launch. The group wall is going to change. There will be people smiling on pictures, looking at you, saying, please scan my QR code and come to my group. We've grown by 41% this year at this church. It's cool. Yeah. It freaks me out. I'm not joking. You know why? Because our groups have not grown by 41%. It scares me to death to think that all we're doing is gathering together for the Barefoot Preacher Show. It scares me to death. I, I have an obligation to steward your soul. And we work hard at creating space for you to grow. And many of you walk by it, never willing to adjust your calendar to make it work. It burdens me. I'll be honest. I, the weight of this series is so heavy. Like Austin can tell you, like I've been freaking out about it all week because I want to articulate how essential your community is to you. I, I want you to experience a community where you look another brother in the eye and you're able to confess the deepest and most difficult things to say about yourself to them and know that in that moment they're not going to beat you with advice, but they're going to cover you in prayer because James teaches us that we're to confess our sins to one another that we may be healed. And that is to be normal in the church. But when's the last time you looked another brother or sister in the eye and were able to say, here's the reality of it. Porn is not something I used to struggle with. I'm struggling with it now now. And I need you. I need help. I need prayer. I need accountability. I, I need you to ask God to help me to fight it because I don't know that I'll make it another seven days of defeating it. I'm struggling in addiction and I need help. Like that's normal. What's abnormal is for a group, a crowd, to keep gathering together like everything's fine, acting as if they're not dependent and desperate for Jesus and in need of community because it's lonely whenever you've got the dark recesses of your soul and the deep, dark secrets that you stuff down within you that you think no one can hear. If they do hear, they'll walk away from you. And you don't experience the love of God because God's love for you is often surround you with the Word and the Spirit and the people of God, and you've eliminated people from being a part of that journey. So now you're alone and you don't think God loves you and you think he's going to reject you because you don't know that God's given you a community that if you would confess your sin and pray for each other, you would experience healing and transformation and empowerment and boldness and courage. I, I know I'm not into the text yet, but I'm trying to preach to you about the fact that for you and I, we need a group. It's not like, it's not like an add-on to your life or an extra burden. It's actually a relief where you finally get to take a breath off the battlefront and go, look, this is where it's at. I'm, I'm struggling. I've been injured. I've been hurt. And I don't need you to fix me, but I need you to stand with me. So you need a crowd. And then out of that crowd, or excuse me, you need a crowd, you need a group. You need a crowd, you need an assembly, you need a group. And then the last group we see Jesus hang out with is this thing called a few. And I can't give you your few. I've said this over and over again. Your few are the people you call 
when no one tells you to call anybody. They're the people you pull in when you push everybody else out. These are the people that you keep a close that you keep close when life is at its worst. They are not the specialists you call in during a crisis. That's not your few. They are people that come in in the midst of a crisis and they give you more than advice. They give you their presence. They're not paid to be there. They're not obligated to be there. They choose to be there. That's your few. For some of you, that's a blood family member. For some of you, that's a a neighbor or a friend that, for whatever reason, the friendship just never dies. But as soon as they're going through it or you're going through it, as soon as you're celebrating or they're celebrating, you immediately pick the phone up and call them. This is your natural community few. Do Do you have a good few? Now, I bring all of that up to then get us to this book on community, the launching of a communal ministry called The Church that the Holy Spirit inaugurates at this thing called Pentecost that we're going to look at. And I want to point out to you over the next several weeks what an uncommon community looks like. What a church looks like. So that, that's, that's where we're going. I'm inviting you to join me on the journey now, finally, for the good part. Acts chapter 1. Here we go. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about... Everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after his chosen apostles' further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time. And he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once, when he was eating with them, he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, verse 7, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But, this is the verse we're going to spend most of our time on today, verse 8, but you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And after saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, heaven, (laughs) two uh, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw. What we see in this first 11 verses is an uncommon community that have been set apart with a unique power for a unique purpose with a unique plan. A unique power for a unique purpose for a unique plan. This is what the church is to be about. There are people of a unique power, with a unique purpose, with a unique plan. You, as a follower of Jesus individually, are to be a person that has a unique power for a unique purpose, that's living for a unique plan. I love the beginning of this book. Uh, Dr. Luke This is the second volume of his two-book volume that we have in our Bibles. He first wrote us the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke 1, you get the same kind of introduction. Theophilus is a word that means loved by God. 
Uh, and so some have argued that this is a letter that's written in general for the church, but more than likely there was a man named Theophilus that had offset the cost of getting the supplies needed for uh, Luke to write down the work of Jesus and then the continued work of Jesus through the church. And so he gets a commendation at the beginning. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen uh, apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered, look at this with me, and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. Now, that's a key word. A couple reasons why that's a key word. It's a key word because there were a lot of myths in other religions that spoke of saviors that spiritually rose from the dead. But what distinguishes the claims of Christianity from other world religions is that Jesus didn't spiritually rise, but he physically rose. And this is what was so difficult for the disciples to believe and understand. You don't go through a scourging and walk it off. A scourging was done by a profession Roman executioner. Your hands were extended above your head. Then a cat of nine tails, which is a whip with nine lashes on it, bones and metal would be tied to the end of it, was then strung across the back and side of Jesus, making him unrecognizable to anyone that would have seen him. John stood with Mary at the cross and saw him suffering. He stood there whenever the sky went dark, and he saw the officers stab Jesus with a spear where blood and water flowed. They've done all autopsies and they've looked into what had happened. Jesus' heart, many believe, literally just erupted. That's why we call it the passion of the Christ. He laid out God's passion for us and God's passion and hate for sin, but his willingness for Jesus to be our substitute. And Jesus died just days prior before then rising again. If you had seen Jesus die in the way that he had died. If you were familiar with Roman culture and what crucifixion looked like and a person looked like before crucifixion and after crucifixion, you can then understand why Thomas would say, I will not believe unless I put my hands in the marks. Many will argue that Jesus is merely a spirit that rose. No, no, no. There's no hope for us in the flesh if it's just a spiritual resurrection. The hope is, is that one day, Jesus, who at this moment reigns and is ruling at the right hand of the Father, will be sent to come and get his bride. And then at the heavenly feast, we will be raised before God in a bodily resurrection where we then will be judged either in Christ or not in Christ. For those that are in Christ, it'll be a day of joy. For those that are without Christ, it'll be a day of weeping and gnashing of teeth because we, serving ourselves and other gods that we made with our hands, will now be destined to a place where the wrath of God burns against us forever in a place called hell. It's really popular. We've tried to write it out of a lot of our Bibles. It's still there. It's a real place. It's not a cuss word. It's a place that Satan doesn't rule and reign. It's the place where God's wrath justly reigns against those who have rebelled against him. God's desire is that none should perish. Because some of you are like, well, that seems... Uh, kind of rough. God desires that none should perish. How much further do you want God to go? He hung naked on a cross and died in your place so that you could, through faith, receive forgiveness of your sins. What more do you want from him? I mean, we honor soldiers all the time. We quote, misquote the Bible about greater love have no one than this, and he laid down his life for his friends to honor people. But yet Jesus does it, and we diminish the value of it because we don't believe that it's sufficient for us or we don't believe that it's enough for us to give up our life to follow him and complete allegiance. 
So over a 40-day period, Jesus periodically keeps popping up and appearing because it's hard to imagine a guy who was in a tomb dead is now not in that tomb dead. He eats food in front of them. Why? Because he's not a spirit. When he restores Peter, what's cooking on the beach? A fire. He didn't spiritually just come and like whoop it up like hocus pocus. Like, like that's not what he did. He built a fire. He lit the fire. He cooked fish over the fire. And he sat and ate fish with the disciples around the fire. Still one of my favorite details is that Peter just days before that restoration denied Jesus in the text writes over a charcoal fire. Days later, it notes that Jesus on the beach built a charcoal fire, and it's there that he restored Peter. See, God, God doesn't wait on you to leave your failure. He meets you in your failure, and he often restores you over it and turns what was your failure into a testimony that gives him glory in it. <laughs> so over 40 days, he appears over and over again, proving that he had actually risen from the dead, and he begins to teach them about the kingdom of God. Verse 4, once he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you'll be baptized with the? All right, this is the big problem that a lot of us are running into. We want to do the work of God, but we don't want it to be done by the Spirit of God. We don't want to wait on God. We want to just get it done. And good people in the flesh do not do good work for the kingdom. Good people in the flesh do not do good work in the kingdom. And some of you are like, I'm going to fix it. Okay, thunder. <laughs> the problem is you're going to run out if it's not God's will. You're going to run out of energy. You're going to run out of patience. You're going to run out of endurance. You're going to run out of grace. You're going to run out of love. If it's God's will, it's God's bill. That means he supplies the grace. He supplies the endurance. He supplies the love. So, so for some of you, you're trying to get stuff done, and you're frustrated, and you're angry. You know why you're angry? Because you're carnal. You're not living submitted to the Spirit, so it's not His supply. It's your carnal supply. It's your flesh trying to provide. It's your flesh trying to overcome. And so because it's not Spirit-filled, it's carnally filled with your flesh and your own effort. And man is incapable of staying the course and following and, uh, and following through on the things that they make promises to God to do. The law was given to us so that we would understand how incapable you and I are in and of ourselves to do anything for the glory of God. So after 40 days, Jesus then tells him to wait. And we have reason for him to say this, right? Just a few days prior, about a month prior, uh, every one of them have abandoned him. And he's going to give the keys of the kingdom to them, and that's a grace... But he's also saying, before you go and take these keys in this car, you need a license. That license is called the Spirit. Because he's going to guide you in what you need to say. He's going to keep you from going stupid and looking at your cell phone while you're driving down the road. He's going to keep you from playing with the radio. Or Some of y'all remember back in the day, you used to have a CD book. <laughs> it weighed about 500 pounds. It was a weapon. So if someone came, you could grab that book by the handle and whop, and you'd knock them out. I never forget I got pulled over one night because I was flipping through all my juvenile CDs in my CD book. I'm not saying it was holy. I'm just saying it's what I was doing. I'm just going to be honest with you. It was Juvie and all the 504 boys. And, uh, yeah, anyway, it was, it was yeah, um, I, I, I appreciate Lecrae. Uh, 
Got pulled over. Why? Because I was distracted. I, I, I was not doing what was prescribed. You need the Holy Spirit to empower you to do what God has called you to do. Look what it goes on to say. So wait for the Spirit. John baptized with water, but in just a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, is it at this time that you come, uh, is that the time you, excuse me, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has authority to set dates and times, and they are not for you to know. All right, let me help you out, Thunder, really quick. We are to be aware of the times, but we do not know the exact times. Yes, Jesus is coming back, but stop staying up late, paying $29.95 to some late-night preacher to tell you the key date on when you need to sow your seed. On when, like, like, stop it. Pay more attention to be obedient to God instead of trying to, at the last minute, kick in and act like you've been obedient to God because you predicted when the last time is going to come, and now it's time to pay attention. I mean, we are scoundrels. If we knew Jesus was coming back next July 4th, I wouldn't see half of you until July 3rd. Y'all will come in like y'all been in a full-blown revival, on mission for Jesus, knowing good and well you've been living like a straight-up hellion, going room springa, acting like it's uh, Mardi Gras for a year, and then you show, you'd show up and you'd be like, oh, great is God, please don't smite me. I mean, like, like you, you would be in that tension. God doesn't appoint for you to know the times and places. He appoints obedience. He provides his spirit. He supplies what you need for every good work that he's called you to do. And so it's not for you to sit here and know the times and places. What they want is they want Israel to be prominent and the preeminent nation in the world. What God is making is a church that would transcend all nations in the world, but that would reach all nations with the gospel of Christ. Then we get to verse 8. And here we go. We'll slow down here. But you will receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So the the first thing that we see that's uncommon about this gathering of people that the Spirit's going to bring together is that there will be a people of power. In and of ourselves, we are horribly under-equipped for any task that Jesus would call us to do. Does Jesus call you to do things that you can't do? Absolutely. That's all he calls you to do. If you could do it without him, then you don't need him. So he gives you the Holy Spirit because apart from the Holy Spirit, you couldn't achieve or do it. I love Henry Blackaby. Henry Blackaby said this about the power in in his book, The Power of Pentecost Every Day. He said, will God ever ask you to do something you're not able to do? The answer is yes, all the time. It must be that way for God's glory and kingdom. If we function according to our ability alone, we will get the glory. But if we function according to the power of the Spirit within us, God gets the glory. He wants to reveal himself to a watching world. So yeah, we, we don't do it by ourselves. What does the Holy Spirit empower us to do? He empowers us to do a ton of stuff. Isaiah, uh, I think it's chapter 42, predicts the work of the Holy Spirit and what he would do. But if you look in the New Testament, I'll give you three quick places of what the Holy Spirit empowers you to do. Number one, the Holy Spirit is there to remind you of the truth. Why? Because you don't think about the truth all the time. You think a lot of lies. Think about how many lies you thought about yourself when you looked in the mirror this week. Think about how many lies you thought about your children, your job, your house, everything else this week that was not seen through the lens of truth. Your children are a blessing from God. Your spouse is a gift from God. You are made in the image 
of God. Yet for a lot of you, you thought the exact opposite of all of that, and you need someone to remind you of the truth. You're going to stand in a world that's going to lie to you. They're going to deceive you and make you think that it's about stuff that's been created by men, dollars and gold, and you need to be reminded of the truth. God paves his streets in gold. Money is not a resource problem that God lacks. He's provided everything you need to be obedient to everything he's called you to do. Not to live the life you want to live, but to live the life that he's called you to live. And therein lies the tension. Some of you, in keeping up with the Joneses, have dishonored God who gave you what he's given you to bless and honor him. And as a result of it, greed has seized your heart. And what you need as a remedy is a reminder that that life is more than stuff. That life is more than what you can gain. It's actually about who you're giving and what you're giving it for, for God's glory and name. So you need to be reminded of the truth, John 14, 26. But when the Father sends the advocate, as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will, here's the word, remind you of everything I have told you. That's why you need the Holy Spirit. Because you're going to look at them kids, you're going to get short-tempered this week, and you're going to be reminded, blessing from God a stewardship from God, not a curse from God, not something to complicate my life, but it's the complexity that speaks to the blessings in my life. How many of you know that a blessed life is a complex life? It's not an easy life. It's like, bless me, God. You're not ready for it. Why? Because you're not handling the complexities of your current life well. So more blessing bringing more complexity is not the prayer you should start with. It should be, God, help me deal with how complex this is before you bless me more because I don't think I can handle it. Three amens. Okay. Is that how we want to play thunder? The Holy Spirit's given to give you a power to remind you of the truth. Number two, to reveal to you what to say. How many of you, like, like you're afraid to talk about Jesus because you're afraid you're going to say something wrong? Like, that's everybody, right? You've been there. I'm going to say something wrong. It's the number one reason given why people don't share their faith. I'm going to say something wrong. Can I just submit to you that the only thing worse than saying something wrong is saying nothing? to a dying world in need of a life raft. The Holy Spirit's been given so that you'll know what to say. Some of you are like, how much of this stuff that you do when you're on stage is written on your paper? Well, you have access to my notes. So right now, I'd say we're running about 15%. I sit what you don't see when you're not here is about the four or five times a day where I get overwhelmed at the task and I walk in, Austin's caught me a few times, Kelsey caught me the other week, I scared her to death. Because <laughs> I don't know what to say. I know what the word says, but I don't always understand it. I read all kinds of commentaries from dead people that write really smart things about it, but I I want the Word of God to sink deep into my soul. And I don't don't want to preach an idea. I want to preach something that's transforming my own life. And so I, I come in and I lay here begging God to end this moment, give me what to say. I take my shoes off before I get up to preach. It's not so that my feet can make you uncomfortable. But it's because I walk through a process of reminding myself of what I'm doing when I preach the Word of God. It's not just merely a man who's contemplated the Scriptures that teaches the Word, but it's the Holy Spirit that lives inside the man. 
that gives them understanding and wisdom with the word. And so I take my shoes off and I always say to myself, God, I remove my shoes because it's holy ground. And just like you spoke into the life of Moses, I believe you're about to speak through your word into the lives of everyone that is assembled here. And the potential that changed an entire nation sits with us in the potential of your word to change the direction of family trees and lives and legacies. I know there's a dad that walked in here this morning that was getting ready to leave his family. His entire legacy was going to be sold in a foreclosure. But I know the potential of God intersecting a life in the middle of life's most grievous and most difficult of situations. And so I I, I preach in faith believing that the most hopeless can be impacted by the Word of God. Then I say, God, open my eyes to prophetic opportunities to speak into people's lives through your Word. To not just read about what you've done, but to appropriately and within the context of Scripture help you to understand what it calls us to do as a family together. See, I don't preach by myself. I preach by the power of God. The Word of God to the people of God. I get the sacred duty of it. I think it's the greatest gift that anyone could ever receive is the gift to open up God's Word with a group of people and, and preach. It's a dependency. It's a trust in God. So when I get up here, I don't predict what I'm going to say always. Sometimes I'm reading the Word, and it's like, it's like a movie script I can just see, and I'm like, i gotta, I got to go there. He gives us what we need to say that we can't often predict in advance what we'll say. That's Matthew chapter 10. And then when we say it, it's not us, up to us to get the results. It's his job to convict the world of sin, which is what the Spirit comes to do. So the Holy Spirit reminds us of truth. It reveals to us what we should say, and it convicts the world of truth, John 16, 8. Are you tracking with me? So we have a unique power, number one. Number two, we have a unique purpose. What's the purpose of the power? Look at the text again with me. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses. The word witness is used 12 times in the book of Acts. In Greek, it's literally translated martyr. This is the purpose for the power. The purpose for the power is not for you to have a platform. The purpose for the power is not for you to get attention. The purpose for the power is not for you to have an easier life. The purpose for the power is not for you to just be blessed so that everyone else can envy your blessing. The purpose of the power is so that you would be a martyr. Before Acts 7, our understanding of the word martyr was tied to a witness in court. Acts 7 changes the biblical understanding of the word witness, and Luke uses it afterwards. In Acts 7, Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, stands up and preaches a very similar message to what Peter preached at Pentecost. But instead of thousands repenting, they picked up stones, gnashed their teeth, and killed him. The idea is that we would take the power of the Holy Spirit, it would give us an encouragement to stand as bold witnesses to the point of death.
So I preach it when a thousand are going to respond, and I preach it when I may die for preaching it. I witness when I could get a promotion out of it or gain favor from people at work, and I witness whenever it could cost me my job and relationships. You see, the only purpose of the church is to be a symphony of witnesses to the world. And this witness is not you teaching Romans 1 through 6 exegetically at work around the water cooler, but it's you consistently connecting the ongoing work of God that's out of sight to many through your words and your witness to become in view of the crowd around you. The idea is that people would see and know the work of God in you. You have a story of how God, if you're a follower of Jesus, has intersected, interrupted, resurrected your life. It's your story. And our story both involved Jesus and his power and his work and his gospel, but in details of where he found us and how he led us out of what we were in, in our tombs and in our brokenness, how he's overcome addiction in our life, how he's restored us, how he's reconciled us. The details vary, but they give us a bridge into parts of culture that others don't have. It's why Acts 17 is so burned in my brain. Because when you get a group of people that realize they've been empowered by the Spirit for the purpose of being a martyr. I mean, Jesus looks at the people that are wanting to follow him. He says, if you want to come after me, do what? Take up your cross. Martyr. Live for me. Die for me. But make it about him. So we get this invitation, you, you and I, to be a bridge. Acts 17 says, For he appointed the times and places for which we should live so that no one would be far from God. And your testimony is a bridge so that no one would be far from God. And in our community, there are a lot of people that are far from God that need to hear your story because your details are similar to their details. And it's going to be used by God to open up what's dead in their tomb and bring life out of it. This is the beauty of your story. Yet the average American Christian will never share the story of how God saved them, changed them, led them, restored them. If your testimony is only about the first day God found you and it's not about what he's done since that day, then it's an incomplete story. I've got testimonies this week of the goodness of God, how he's intersected my life, how he's made me a better father. I've screwed it up a lot. But his grace has been sufficient. His mercy has been new. So we're a people of unique power and unique purpose. Why? Because God has a unique plan. What's his plan? That we will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. Okay, really quick, two, two parts of this. Number one, think about what Jesus is saying to them. You're going to go to Jerusalem where they crucified me, and you're going to be my martyrs. Who's ready? Then we're going to go to Judea, where they rejected me in the gospel and ran us out of town. And you're going to be my martyrs. And then we're going to go to Samaria, the people you don't like on the other side of the bridge. 
you're going to be my martyrs. And then you're going to go to the scariest people of all, the people who look at the world completely different than you. And guess what you're going to be? You're going to be my martyrs. And the book of Acts is a story of a community, not because they were sufficient in and of themselves, not because they were confident. No, persecution came. They were scattered by force and providence. But by the end of the book of Acts, guess where they're at? Ends of the earth. Ends of the earth. See, God has a unique plan. The plan is no matter where you're at and no matter what season you find your life in, you would be a witness to the goodness of God. You would be a witness to the love of God. You would be a witness to the power of God. You would speak to the testimony of what God is doing in your life. It's why we get together every single week so that you would be encouraged to tell someone about the story of what God is doing in your life. That's the idea. That it wouldn't be a preacher that's a witness, but we would be a symphony of witnesses. And I get, man, the world's broken, and it's painful, and a lot of you, I love you, and I'm watching you go through some of the most difficult times in your life, and I wish I could fix it. I wish I could just lift it off of you. But in suffering and in pain, he's still worthy of being witnessed to. He's still worthy of being praised. Why? Because this world is broken, it's painful, death comes, difficulty, trial, and tribulation come, but there's this track that runs beside the brokenness of this world that is going to intersect it again at the second coming of Christ, and that is the character of God and the providence of God and the ongoing work of God in spite of whatever's happening on the other track. And I just want to remind you that it may not be good, but it hasn't changed the goodness of God. It may be painful, but it hasn't changed the fact that God is going to wipe away the tears from your eyes, and that pain will have a purpose in His divine plan for His glory in his kingdom. And for you and I today, some of you need to hear this. You need to hear this because you're thinking your difficulty means that you need to sit down and be quiet when in actuality, now more than ever, you should stand and be a martyr. You should stand and be a witness because it's for a time like this that God would call you and I to encourage and support each other so that as we testify to the goodness of God in the midst of times that aren't good, the world would see the goodness of God in the middle of bleak and difficult seasons of life. Gosh, if he's only good when times are good, then what kind of God do you have? I, I believe that if we do this well, surrender to the Spirit, our city, our community, not because we'll have a big church. I don't care about having a big church, but I care about you experiencing the joy of that moment where the Spirit of God empowers you for his unique purpose and his unique plan, and you begin to experience God using you to change the world for his kingdom and his glory, and I will die to the end of getting your mouth open to speak the praise, glory, and witness of God. So my, my question to you as we come to the point of invitation is, are you a martyr or are you a civilian? Is your chief end, your purpose, to witness to the glory of God wherever you're at by the power of the Spirit that's been given you? Or, or is there some secondary purpose that's become primary that's begun to trump your perspective of knowing why you're here? You are here so that no one would be far from God. You are here so that people would see the presence and the grace and the mercy of God. You are here so that you will be a witness to the nations. I don't know what the invitation looks like for you. If you do not know Jesus, we, we would love to talk with you about that. Our prayer team is going to come forward. 
For some of you, it may look like repentance. That's normal here at this church. We come to the altar and we bend our knees. We don't sit pridefully in our seats. We bend our knees here when God speaks to us and calls us. For some of you, it may look like a, a commitment of saying, God, anew, I want to commit my life to your gospel. Anew, I want to commit my life to the surrender to your spirit. Anew, I want to commit my life to being a witness. I'm scared to death of what it may mean, but anew, I trust that you will conquer that fear by your spirit and through your word. Whatever that looks like, you move as the Lord leads. Let's stand, let's sing. In Jesus' name, amen.